Hello and welcome to episode one of Adrian Goldberg's talk show where I've enticed you in with promises of amazing people, incredible stories and uh, stuff that I just find interesting. You can judge for yourself which category this one falls into. As a member of Birmingham punk band Suburban Studs, saxophonist Steve Harrington played a supporting gig with the Sex Pistols at London's 100 Club in 1976. And the same band also played as a headline act with The Clash supporting. So there are a few people better placed to judge which of these two iconic punk bands were the best to see live, The Pistols or The Clash. Steve will be telling us shortly. Another of his bands, Neon Hearts, have just had their debut album, Popular Music, re-released on red vinyl, 40 years after it first saw the light of day in 1977. And unlikely as it might seem, and true to the music business cliché, Neon Hearts today, an obscure punk band from Wolverhampton, are big in Japan. I met Steve at a rehearsal room in Wolverhampton and asked him when he first became aware of the movement that would change the face of British music, fashion and culture. Well, from my point of view, punk started for me. I was in a Birmingham band, the Suburban Studs, and we used to gig a lot in Birmingham, um, Barbarella's, Bogart's, Rebecca's, all the, all the main venues, did a stint in Germany. We got to know Eddie Futrell, who ran a lot of the clubs in Birmingham. Then they started doing um, a regular punk night, and we were there on a regular basis, and they started bringing bands in like The, the, the Clash, The Damned, and a lot of bands from out of the, out of the area. And that's when we did the, the gig with The Clash. Yeah, so that was kind of very early days. That was when it was just the kind of nucleus of things. It was all just starting then, really. And then the one came up with Pistols at the 100 Club. That's where it basically started. They were doing their first gigs there. That's when the punk thing really took off. People were fed up of um, going to see bands where it was like it took them all day to set up and they had 20 truckloads of gear. We used to turn up. We had no monitors. A lot of the times we didn't want stage lights. We just wanted the house lights on. And you'd play in stark white rooms. You know, that was the... That was the punk ethic. It was like stripped. It was stripped right down. Tell me about um, playing on the same bill as the Sex Pistols. Then this was a legendary hundred club gig, yeah, yeah. which I'm guessing would have been in 1976. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, obviously the Pistols now seen as a, a legendary band. Did did it strike you at that time that 40 years on, here we would be uh, sitting talking about them? Um, no, not really. Um, they were they were different. The gig it wasn't it wasn't a very very busy night either. The but the the punk thing was starting to emerge. Then I remember and it, things stick in your mind. There was two girls in front of us and they everybody that was the cool thing with the punk. Everybody made their own clothes. You know, even if you couldn't really make anything, you did it. And there was two girls in front and they'd rip the pockets off the back of the jeans and they'd got PVC pockets on so you could see what was in their back pockets and it was stuff like that. It was very. It was very stylized, very but very instant. Thinking back to that gig, it wasn't something that you'd go, "This is the start of a revolution." But from then, it obviously grew and grew and grew, you know. But it, for us, it was a gig. What can you remember of the Pistols? They were good. They played well. They, they you know, they were they were a good band. I remember there was a grand piano on stage, and um, Johnny Rotten was kind of messing about with that 
while we were kind of doing the sound checks and stuff like that. They didn't talk much. There was not much communication. We just went in, did our gig. They did their bit. And how were they? Oh, yeah, they went down really well. They had a following there. They had a fan base there. But it was a, it was not a big club. It was um, it looked like a, a typical kind of like jazz club, you know, probably a hold about 200 people. And... Um, it was. It wasn't rammed. It was. It was. It was a good crowd, but it wasn't rammed, and they went down really well. And I mean, we went down okay. I, I was um, rotten. I mean, I see footage of the time, and he, he was, you know, a, quite a distinctive uh, performer. What, what can you remember of his stage presence? It was just another gig for them, really, and it was just another gig for us. You don't. It didn't. It didn't stand out. It's only like now when you think back and you you did the gig at the time, but. At, at, when we played with them, they weren't kind of... Um, they were very good, very powerful. The energy was there and all the aggression was there, which was what came out of punk, you know, the the, um, the angst, you know, the the whole thing. But standing there at the night, like I say, they were just a good band. And, you know, we walked away and we thought, yeah, yeah, there's something happening here. And we were, we knew we were part of it because we were on a bill with them, you know. And then all of a sudden... It really started to kind of get a hold, you know. You headlined over the clash. You just uh, got your phone out now, and there's a, a picture of you, and I can, I can see in the back row there, there's uh, Joe Strummer yeah. with a skinny tie, uh, Paul Simonon, yeah. far right, the, the band's bass is tall, very angular face, yeah. very good looking. Where are you in, in this parachute suit? I'm in the middle there. That's, um, that's me. And where was that gig? That was at Barbarellas. That was in the um, the dressing room at Barbarellas. In Birmingham, Futural, Eddie Futural, he used to do a lot of live stuff and local stuff. And because we were the local act um, and we used to pull, we were obviously put on there as the headline that night and um, and the clash turned up. I mean, and then... We as s- your support. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, we went to see them about a month later because we always used to be able to kind of get into... Um, Barbs, you know, we'd just turn up at the door and we'd be we'd be let in, and the clash were on, and you couldn't get in the place. It was like we were at the back, and it was and it was just heaving. You know, you couldn't move. You saw then the two iconic bands of British punk at close quarters. Oh yeah, the Pistols and the Clash. Yeah, debate rages about which was the best. Clash were really good. Clash were really good. Strummer was like. The energy, um, the energy that came out of him. But in the dressing room, he never spoke. He sat there just with his guitar on the um, on the sofa in there. I remember saying hello to him, and he was like, "Oh." And uh, there were very. Simon was more outgoing. Um, Paul Simon in the bass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they went on stage, and they just ripped the place up. You know, they were really, really good. You could you could feel it. You could feel that they'd got something to say. You know, they were they were a great band. Yeah. So you think the the Clash is a live band? Add it over the Pistols. I think yeah. If I was to if I had to make a choice, yeah, yeah, yeah. The the, the Clash were really really energetic. You know they've got, you know the guitarist um, Mick Jones. Mick Jones. Yeah, they they just got um, and like you say, Simon was just such a he was a good looking guy. He was like he was the he was kind of one of those outstanding looking people in the, in the in the punk scene. You know because. You know, there's lots of ugly people emerged, but he was like, he got a kind of really good look and he used to wear the um, the kind of parachute suit, which Sting wore as well. So the Clash, edgy. 
For me, yeah, for me, yeah. They got some great songs. They got some great songs, and they used to they used to do a bit of um, the kind of that, that reggae vibe as well, which used to break up their set. You couldn't call it intellectualized, but they were more. They'd got something else going for them, and they were more. I don't know. They seemed to um, be more from the street. After Suburban Studs, you left that band and uh, formed a band called Neon Hearts. Yeah. Uh, who were based in Wolverhampton. The debut album of Neon Hearts, Popular Music, has just been reissued with red vinyl. The thing is, you were you were, you were in the the scene. The real punk scene probably only lasted a year. The real, and then it was kind of commercialised, and then every band that came out was a punk band, and then there were bands getting on top of the pops, you know. But the the initial, let's say, the initial impact was very stylized and very individual. And then all of a sudden, everybody looked the same, like it tends to happen in fashion. You know, everybody, you could buy the check trousers and the bondage stuff, you know, whereas people were originally, they were seeking out the bondage gear. With all due respect, Neon Hearts were a band who had their moment, you know, mm. but in the history of punk or New Wave, they're a relatively obscure band, I think it's fair to say. Mm. Yet 40 years on, you've decided to re-release the record and through many of the intervening years, probably more popular in Japan, of all yeah, places, yeah, yeah. Th- than you are in yeah. this country. How come? What's ha- what happened? There's um, a really cool guy called John Esplin. These pioneers, kind of all the punk stuff. In He's up in Newcastle, and he's got a record label called Overground. And he approached us a few years ago, and he really liked the stuff. And he said, there's that many people trying to bootleg your stuff. He said, well, don't we do um, a CD? So we did the CD of um, popular music. And that went really, really well. And it made waves in, in Japan. And then we did a follow-up with uh, called Ball and Chain. And that was all demos to show people that we, we always thought that the popular music album was overproduced. And we were rawer than that. And some of the demos we got were kind of more raw. So... He also released the Ball and Chain album, and that kind of took off in Japan. And at probably early, early two thousands, I had a, John phone me up, and he said, "There's a guy contacted me from Japan. He wants you to tour Japan." And I was like, "Wow!" And a, a version of Neon Hearts without you did tour Japan in the end. Yeah, yeah, I'd. I'd, I'd if you know a bit of my history, I'd been running clubs and, and stuff like that in the studio, recording, rehearsal. And then the date for Japan was confirmed, and I thought, and I was committed to the, my club. All my investment was in that, and I thought, you know what, I can't find anybody to run it. And I, like a, I regret it now, but with hindsight, you know, I said I can't do it. Because you were running your, yeah, your own, yeah, your own yeah, nightclub yeah, venture. Yeah, yeah. But Neon Hearts, without you then, did tour in Japan. Yeah. And, and as a result of that, you still get yeah, fan yeah. mail from oh, yeah, Japan? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a girl sax player who was kind of hero worshipped the band, apparently, and they got her on stage to do a couple of tracks playing along. And she kind of stylized herself on my, my playing. God knows why. And... Um, She's been in touch with me 
um, saying, you know, what are we doing? Are we coming back to Japan? And they'd like to see us back in Japan. But you're um, getting e- you're getting emails now then from a, a Japanese sax player yeah. who was influenced by your yeah, sax yeah. playing in Neon Hearts, Neon Hearts all those years yeah, ago. Yeah. So you, you can truthfully say, even now, yeah. 40 years on, yeah, Neon Hearts are. Yeah, we're big in Japan. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's weird. My thanks to Steve Harrington of Neon Hearts. And if you do want to buy popular music reissued on red vinyl, 40 years on, you can get it from Overground Records. I hope you've enjoyed episode of one of Adrian Goldberg's talk show. Some of the pictures that Steve referred to will be available through my website, adriangoldberg.com. Subscribe and join me for episode two. I'll see you soon.